Hello. Welcome to the Edgewood Astronomy Outreach Team's first ever recorded interview. My name is Melissa. I am a Edgewood College student, and today we will be joined by fellow Edgewood faculty member, David Cordy. David is a recent addition to the Edgewood family and a recent graduate from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he earned his PhD in geosciences. Throughout his studies, David has completed research on ecosystem evolution. Specifically, his research focused on reef ecosystems from the early Cambrian period, trying to understand when reefs first became the biodiversity-rich environments that we see today. David, thank you for joining us today to talk about paleontology and what it can tell us about astrobiology and the search for extraterrestrial life. Thank you very much, Melissa. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm happy to be your inaugural guest. Thank you. So, David, I want to start with this. Paleontology is the study of the Earth's fossilized organisms or environments, but from a long time ago. Could you elaborate on this definition and explain how paleontology can help us learn about life beyond our planet? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> that's a pretty common question. People never know exactly what paleontology refers to. So basically, paleontology is uh, broadly the study of the fossil record and environments of the past. So that includes studying the organisms that exist in the past and also the environments that they existed uh, during uh, ancient times. So we use the fossil record primarily. So sometimes you also hear people refer to paleontology as the study of fossils, and that's also pretty accurate. Um, what sometimes people think when they hear the term paleontology is that it's just the study of dinosaurs. And yes, we do study dinosaurs. Obviously, dinosaurs are uh, examples of past life. Um, but it's not just dinosaurs. Uh, we study everything from you know, worms to other uh, vertebrates like mammals, uh, trace fossils, which are like markings that other animals leave. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, just the environments in general that those organisms lived in. So not just dinosaurs, all different kinds of organisms. Of course, dinosaurs are pretty cool, though, so they <laughs> do make uh, a frequent appearance in paleo classes. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of how that actually connects to uh, life on other planets, um, one really interesting thing about paleontology is that as you look deeper and deeper in time, you see different environments. So the environment that we see on Earth today is not what the Earth has always looked like. When you go back, way back deep in time, maybe millions, billions of years, the Earth looks very different. And we can study both the conditions that existed in the past, but also the organisms that evolved in the past during those different conditions. And the way this connects to life on other planets is that if we, for example, know a little bit about uh, a different planet that we haven't been to, we know maybe a little bit about its atmosphere or a little bit about the, the rocks and the temperature that exists in that planet, uh, we can then refer back to, well, was there, was there ever a similar period of time here on Earth? and what kind of organisms evolved then. So it gives us some kind of inclination of what kind of organisms could possibly evolve on those other planets. Um, not to necessarily say that every planet that has certain conditions will evolve certain types of life, but at least gives us some kind of frame of reference of what to look for when we're looking at other planets. So looking back at Earth's fossil records and historical environments, can help us determine if life is possible on other planets and what that life might look like? 
Yeah, exactly. Very good. Uh, simply, we have so much information here on our planet already um, by looking at the fossil record that we can also apply the information to other places. But what do we actually look for when we look into space and what types of technologies make this possible? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, well, for one thing, paleontology has evolved itself quite a bit recently. Um, you know, I think in the early days of paleontology, a lot of it was pretty straightforward. You went out into the middle of nowhere, got lost for a while and found some rocks, cracked them open and looked for fossils. It was pretty straightforward, just looking for things that you um, would expect a fossil to look like. Um, however, the problem with that, with just looking for you know, a fossil with your naked eyes, is that that really limits you to recognizing things that you're already familiar with. Um, so that's, that's great if you're looking for dinosaurs and you're just you know, looking for dinosaurs or something like that. But if you're looking for the really weird stuff, you might not even recognize it as an organism unless you go a little deeper. Um, if uh, your listeners have you know, looked into the fossil record, they might have seen these really weird examples of early animals. Um, some of the more famous ones like Dickinsonia and the Hallucigenia are sort of famous examples of animals that don't at all look like animals. And sometimes we're not even really sure if they are animals. It's kind of a debate a lot of times. So we have to have some additional techniques to determine if those things that we're looking at are really animals and what they could be more specifically. So the tools that we've started using more recently are things like biomarkers. And basically what a biomarker is, is they're little sort of like fingerprints of life. They're at least molecular fingerprints, I should say. Um, certain mm -hmm. types of organisms will actually leave little uh, uh, you know, molecular signatures, like usually in the form of like fats, so like lipids. And we can collect rocks and analyze them for these biomarkers. And if we find those biomarkers present, then we have a pretty good indication that those organisms existed uh, when those rocks were deposited. So. That's really handy because then it means you don't actually have to find a fossil to have some evidence mm -hmm. that organisms were around. Um, another example, and this also goes into like chemistry, is to look for certain ratios of isotopes. Um, mm -hmm. If your listeners are familiar, but isotopes are basically uh, different elements or is an element with a different weight than it might normally have. So an isotope might have a couple extra neutrons uh, compared to a more standard form of elements. And mm -hmm. carbon is a really, really just common iso uh, uh, element. All organisms on our planet have carbon. And if we look at the rock record, we can sometimes find carbon. And if it has a specific isotopic ratio, that's usually indicative that that carbon was deposited uh, or was originally part of an organism. So just looking for certain isotopic signatures also can tell us that there was probably organisms around at a certain period of time. And Actually, as a matter of fact, most people don't necessarily realize that uh, isotopes are pretty much our earliest record of life on the planet. It's not actual fossils, it's chemical signatures like these isotopes. Um, once we actually get some fossils, so we can do all that and that's all well and good, but clearly people mm -hmm. always want the actual fossil. They want to see it for real. Um, right. But that can get, yeah, that can get really difficult sometimes when you have these weird things you don't really know what they are. So we have a, a whole series of tests using various uh, microscopes that can help give us some indication as to whether that fossil really is a fossil or not. Um, one technique is using scanning electron microscopy, which is basically a really, really powerful microscope. And we can look at the really fine details of the fossil 
And that can give us some indication as to whether it's just a funny looking rock or an actual organism. So all these techniques you know, combined give us a more full understanding of whether we're actually looking at a fossil or just some kind of weird, you know, blobby structure on a rock. Awesome. Yeah. Can that be used on, uh, could these technologies be used uh, towards other, studying other planets as well? Yeah. Uh, the, the fortunate thing with using those chemical techniques is that you don't actually have to be um, on that uh, specific location to use them. So um, I must admit, I'm not completely familiar with the extent that different satellites can actually pick up these differences, but at least the, the fact that we can identify the chemical signatures of life gives us some hope that, you know, with long range remote sensing or like satellite observations, we can maybe pick up on some of these differences and hopefully um, make a, some kind of prediction as whether there's life there or not. So yeah, because, of the, because we know something about the chemistry of life, that does give us some hope that we can do this on places that we haven't actually been to. Certainly. So if we see that this is possible on other planets, that's a good thing. Uh, however, with eight other planets in our, in our solar system and over 4,000 exoplanets or those outside of our solar system, where do we start looking for extraterrestrial life? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of places to look beyond yeah. just uh, <laughs> our solar system with you know thousands of exoplanets being found all the time. Well, mm -hmm. if we wanted to narrow that down a little bit, you know, from 4,000 and counting, I'm sure, um, we can use the Earth as an analog. You know, we know a little bit about the environment that life evolved here on Earth. We can maybe try and find similar environments in other places. So for example, looking at the fossil record, we have a pretty good indication that life first originated in places that were wet, places that were shielded from UV radiation because UV radiation can break down cells and cause deadly mutations. Um, and we know that probably originated in places that had a good energy source. So wet shielded from UV radiation has energy source. If we look for places like that, that's generally a good spot to start looking for life. Um, that type of environment exists fairly commonly on Earth, so hydrothermal vents. So there are mm -hmm. these basically cracks in the Earth that uh, occur at the bottom of the oceans. Um, and they're obviously wet because they're underwater, which helps facilitate like nutrient transport um, mm -hmm. across a cell of an organism. Uh, they're very deep, which means they're shielded from UV radiation from the overlying ocean. Um, and also mm -hmm. there's an energy source. So a lot of organisms use photosynthesis for their energy source, but these organisms that live in hydrothermal vents have used chemosynthesis, which is basically using the chemistry of the environment instead of light um, to create the energy that they need. So because we know that life evolved in these types of environments, it seems reasonable that if we found a planet that had this sort of criteria, that that might be um, a good candidate for searching for extraterrestrial life. Right, definitely. And we know that planets within habitable, habitable zones, excuse me, and the correct chemical atmospheric compositions and markers hold the possibility of supporting life. But why do we think so few of them are able to develop life? And how do we actually know that they haven't? Is it possible for them to develop life in the future? Yeah, that's, that's obviously a really good question. Um, the one thing I can say is that we know that life appeared to have occurred fairly quickly here on Earth. So the Earth is 
about 4.5 billion years old, give or take 10 million years or so. Um, the first half a billion or so uh, was basically the Earth was molten. Like the Earth was extremely hot um, mm -hmm. and it's really unlikely that any life occurred or any life of any form could ever occur in that first half a million years. So mm -hmm. really, when you're looking at the Earth, the first like 4 billion years is the window for life to occur. And it's really interesting, but the oldest evidence of life, which again is those, uh, those carbon isotopic signatures, occurs about 3.8-ish maybe, and it's always being pushed back further and further, about 3.8 billion years ago. So it's really interesting that life appears to have emerged on Earth almost as soon as it possibly could, which definitely says that those early organisms were really resourceful and that the Earth was probably really, I guess, supportive for uh, letting life evolve on it. Um, so we definitely know that it's really easy for Earth, but then it does kind of uh, make us ask the question, like, if it's so easy for Earth, um, how come no other places? And life, I guess, is just very complex and maybe just doesn't quite have the right combination of characteristics, or maybe we're just not looking for the right type of life is another reason why we maybe haven't found it yet. Yeah, certainly. And we can see that the Earth made it look easy. Um, but we can say that we have no, have we found any other evidence of life on other planets yet? Not that I'm aware of. Perhaps some government lab somewhere would say otherwise. But no, <laughs> it, does, it does not appear that we've ever found evidence of life on any other planets. Um, and one thing I think that people think about when they think of extraterrestrial life is they picture, you know, little green men, you know, little you know, spaceship with a little humanoid looking alien. Um, mm -hmm. But it is important to remember that uh, the most common life form on our planet is bacteria. There's millions, billions of different types of bacteria on our planet. And it's probably pretty likely that if we ever do find life on another planet, it's probably going to be bacteria just because bacteria is so common on our planet. It makes sense that it would be uh, the most common type on another planet that supports life. So there was quite a bit of stir in like the 1990s when um, a meteorite from uh, Mars was found and people thought it had some bacteria on it, which, like I said, people were kind of looking for bacteria because they thought it would be the most common form of life to exist. Um, however, that bacteria ended up not really being the right size. Um, it was, you know, far too uh, uh, small to be mm -hmm. any kind of bacteria that we would normally picture. Also, the chemical signatures of that rock wasn't very convincing either, so it seems unlikely that that was actual bacteria. Um, but it's it, it, it proved a kind of important point that that's probably what we should be looking for if we want to find life on other planets. It's probably going to be bacteria. And it's really tough sometimes to tell whether a, a, a splotch on a rock is actually a bacterial fossil or not, which is where paleontology comes in. Another really important connection between paleontology and astrobiology is that we deal with these kind of things all the time. We deal with little splotches mm -hmm. on rocks and we have to try and figure out, is that actually a fossil or not? Um, that's the exact same type of questions we're going to have to answer when we come across uh, a potential you know, Martian fossil or astrobiological fossil is is this actually life or not and that's the same exact tools of paleontology apply to astrobiology in that context yeah that's a that's actually a really good correlation with earth and, and mars 
Uh, do you think that there's a correlation between more complex geological planets, moons? Um, would they be, could they, uh, is there a correlation with more complex life? That makes sense when I think, when I, when I think about it. We know that our planet is unique in our solar system, at least, that we have plate tectonics, which basically plate tectonics is this idea that the Earth's crust is broken up into these different plates. The crust of the Earth isn't entirely solid. It's broken up into these smaller plates, and these plates move around relative to each other. Sometimes they bump into each other and they create mountains. Sometimes they move apart and they create uh, spreading centers. Um, but all of this creates a lot more complex geology. This, this idea of plate tectonics is really the main uh, way of describing the geology on our planet. And it's much more complex than, say, something like the moon, which doesn't have plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. And our planet is also the only one that has life on it, as far as we know. So at least with you know limited data, there does appear to be a correlation with um, more complex geologic planets and uh, life actually emerging on them. All right. Yeah. To summarize what we've talked about so far, if we can include the chemical analysis, historical, biological, and geological development of life on Earth, we can therefore conclude that there's a very real chance we will find extraterrestrial life. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Um, as we said before, there's a lot of exoplanets out there um, mm -hmm. and our knowledge of the geology of them is pretty limited at this time. But just by the sheer fact that there are so many of them, it seems likely that just the right combination of uh, characteristics will be found at some point and that extraterrestrial life will exist somewhere. So with just so many chances, it does seem highly likely that um, we will find extraterrestrial life in the future. All right. And to uh, reiterate our point on the on the uh, responsibilities that paleontologists can have to this new science, um, what are some things that paleontologists are currently working on to help the search for life? Yeah, uh, well, there's many, many questions that uh, paleontologists are trying to answer. Uh, one that I think does uh, relate more specifically to astrobiology is just the question of uh, when did early animals first evolve and what kind of conditions caused those early animals to evolve? So for example, the first, I don't know, four, th maybe three and a half to four billion years of Earth history, the planet was essentially dominated by microbial organisms. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't plants, there wasn't animals, the oceans were fairly devoid of life except for microorganisms. Then about I don't know, 600 million years ago, there is a huge change and there's lots of more complex organisms. And that's a big question. What exactly caused this shift from simple to complex? Um, in paleontology and on Earth specifically, we know that right around that same time period, there was a huge change in the environment where there was a giant ice age and glaciers mm -hmm. covered basically the entire planet. And after those glaciers melted, there was a much more complex fossil record. Are the two connected? Probably, maybe. It seems like it would make sense. It's, you know, it's an oddly specific time frame for this really big change to happen. And then all these you know, changes in the organisms happens just after it for it to be a complete coincidence. Paleontologists usually look for things like maybe this ice age caused a change in the oxygen in the oceans and oxygen is really important for organisms to evolve. 
Uh, there's also a lot of people that look at how this ice age might have affected the phosphorus cycle, and phosphorus is another key ingredient for life. So basically what paleontologists are trying to answer are what are the chemical signatures and environmental conditions that can trigger a massive development in complexity in organisms? And those types of questions are totally relevant to astrobiologists as well. Like what sorts of conditions should we look at for more complex life as opposed to the really simplistic life forms that we imagine will be the majority of organisms on it? So these types of questions, I think you could repeat on any planet's um, and see if you find some kind of similarity um, in terms of what maybe triggers complexity. And we're trying to do that, at least with our planet right now. That is very interesting. Thank you. And that will conclude our interview today. And thank you for joining us today, David. We appreciate you taking the time to teach us a little bit about astrobiology and how our own planet could possibly hold the answers to our questions. Yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I think there's a lot of overlap between the sciences that people don't always realize. Like paleontology is usually housed in like the geology department, but that doesn't mean that it can't contribute to things like uh, astronomy and astrobiology. So um, it takes all different types of scientists to really answer the big questions sometimes. So I appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit from my field on how it can help out uh, in astronomy. Thank you. And I, yes, I completely agree with that. It's, it's awesome to see how uh, the different studies can connect to one another to answer the bigger questions. I also want to give a huge thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. And until next time, we will see you all later. Thank you.